This morning we are on part two of our Sanctify series, and in week one we looked at what it means to be sanctified unto God. And it, the word in the, in the Greek is hagiosmos, and it really means just to be set apart, to be set apart for God, for his pleasure and for his purposes. And in order to live set apart lives for God, in order to be those people who are free to walk in God's purposes and walk in a way that is a delight to God, we need to cultivate that habit of saying yes to God as the main routine of our lives. We understand that as we say yes to God, as we take his word to us seriously and as we take the prompts of the Holy Spirit seriously and we walk in step with the Holy Spirit, we understand that God has got blessing for us. That God wants to meet us in our obedience, in our responses of trust. And to meet us where we are, down the road, to bless us and bless us and bless us. And there are things that he can do with us and ways that God can bless us that he can't do unless we say yes to God and cooperate with his leading in our lives. Amen? So that's what we're looking at in this series. How to live as sanctified, set apart people who say yes to God and experience his blessing and his intervention in our lives. Now we're continuing with this theme and we're... And we are want, I want to look at the theme of altars, because altars in the Bible have a lot to do with sanctification. They're always central in, to the relationship between God and the nation of Israel, who were called to be a sanctified people. They were, they were a nation that was set apart for God's pleasure and purposes. So much of the relationship between Israel and God was worked out and agreed at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And before that, so much was agreed with the nation of Israel at the altar in the tabernacle as this nation moved from one place to another. And then before that, and even before Egypt, with the patriarchs, so much was worked out before God on rough altars made with stones that were roughly put together as people allowed God to set themselves apart and they said yes to God in different ways in their lives. So altars were important places for those who wished to live set apart for Yahweh. Are you with me? Now, I, I particularly love how the patriarchs used them. We can learn a lot about how to live set apart for God, sanctified for Him. And I want to jump into Genesis a little bit later just to look at some of those stories of how the patriarchs <coughs> responded to God and built these altars and what they mean and how we can apply that to our daily lives now. But first, I, I just want to look at quickly at what happens at the altar. Jesus said that altars sanctify the offerings that are made upon them. That's Matthew 23, verse 19. So when an off, uh, offering is placed on the altar, its significance changes. It's no longer just a lamb, or some wheat, or some olive oil, or some wine, whatever it is that's being brought. It becomes 
something else. When it's placed upon the altar, it becomes a spiritual gift, something that is dedicated to God and accepted by God as a sign that this person wants to respond to his word and live in relationship with himself. Amen? So the offerings that were made were, were of many kinds <coughs> and did different things. They symbolize the different ways that we need to relate to God. So there were thank offerings, there were sin offerings, there were redemption offerings. Whatever you needed to do to get right with God and to establish a vital relationship with God, there was a way to do that through the offerings system. So of course, we know, because we've got the history of the Israelite people, that this whole system that God provided for relationship with himself got corrupted, didn't it? I mean, it became very religious. It became about power and status. It became superstitious in some cases. But it was never intended to be like that. It was intended to be a place of worship where Israelites under the old covenant could say yes to God and be set apart as his special people. So the sentiment behind the sacrifices at the altar was intended to be something along the lines of, God, I know this is going to cost me something, but I want to be right with you. And I want you to count me in with your people and your plans. I want, I want what you have for my life, and I want to be forgiven and blessed by you. And though I am giving this gift... It is merely a symbol of my real offering. I'm really, freely offering myself to you. That was supposed to be the sentiment behind those gifts at the temple. That was what they were supposed to achieve. So this was a tremendous gift to people living under the old covenant. Are you following me? So what do we have under the new covenant? The book of Romans makes it clear that Sacrifices of this nature are no longer required because Jesus, he paid every sacrifice that would ever be needed once and for all. So we don't need temple sacrifices in the same way anymore because his sacrifice was, was sufficient and fulfilled the law and it, its requirements. But then he goes on to say that those are, though our sins are permanently forgiven through his sacrifice, we still have an opportunity to respond to God in a real and sacrificial way. We can still come to God in a powerful and legitimate way and say, yes, I want what you have for me and I want to offer myself to you. I still want to be part of your set-apart people. I still want to be part of those who have allowed you to call us out of the mundane and to become the people that you're going to work your purposes through and that you're going to lavish your love upon. <coughs> Romans 12 verse 1 says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy, that is sanctified, sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. That's Romans 12.1. So, if we as people want to offer our lives to God, we still can. Not by traveling once a year to Jerusalem to offer lambs or pigeons, 
but by going daily into our prayer room and offering our living, breathing, normal, everyday lives to God. And in the same way that the sacrifices of old were sanctified as they were given, we too are considered holy and special to God as we give our lives day to day. Isn't that wonderful? It's so much more intimate. It's so much more straightforward in a way. And yet equally profound. And sometimes because it's so easy just to walk into a room and pray, perhaps we take it a little lighter than we should. Rather than making a pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem, climbing that big old mountain, and then spending our hard-earned money and going through a whole big uh, visceral process of sacrifice, all we need to do is walk into a room and do whatever you do, get on your knees before God and begin to pray. It's no less significant. In fact, it's more so because the sacrifice that made it possible is even greater. Let's jump into Genesis. Because there's a relationship that some of these saints of old managed to establish with God, which is just breathtaking. And you know what? Right from the earliest days, those who desired to be set apart for God built altars for the Lord. We know that at the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, we've got Cain and Abel bringing offerings to the Lord. It doesn't actually mention the word altar in Genesis chapter 4. I looked for it and I couldn't find it. Um, but it does show that they were bringing their offerings to God. And so it may well have been a practice of Adam and Eve. It may have gone right back to the very, 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 very origins of human relationship with God. But the first altars that we read about in the Bible uh, is with Noah in Genesis chapter 8. It, says, it talks about how Noah used to build altars and worship the Lord. He would sacrifice unto the Lord. And I, I can't think of anyone in the scriptures that is more set apart, really, than Noah. He was set apart from the whole human race for God's pleasure and his plans in a pretty epic way. So his practice was to build an altar and sacrifice and worship unto the Lord. And I hope he doesn't get carried away on the ark, you know. Yeah, you can imagine him sacrificing something on the ark, one of the two by two, and God saying, well, I love your offering, Noah, but that's another species extinct. <laughs> um, I don't know if he did that or not. But we do see a trend. You see, as you go through Genesis and then Exodus and Leviticus, you see that there is this thread that goes right through the patriarch's history. People need places of worship. People need moments of interaction with God. People need these times where they can mark moments, places, transitions in their lives. What I've seen it is important in these moments in Genesis, I believe can be key for us too. And it's that the altars that the patriarchs built marked three key things. And I want you to hear these three things before we go any further. Number one, the altars they built always marked an intervention from God. Number two, they marked an agreement with God. 
And number three, they marked a point at which the worshipper was willing to give that which was costly to them. Okay? They marked an intervention of God, they marked an agreement with God, and they marked, marked a point in their lives where the worshipper was willing to give that which was costly to them. So open your Bibles at Genesis and chapter 12. And we're going to pick up a story with Abraham. And this is just after Abraham has been called to leave his home and his security and be set apart for God and everything that God wants to do through him. And in obedience he has gone and he's placed his trust in God and he's set out. So Genesis chapter 12 and from verse 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all his wealth and his livestock and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran and he headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abraham travelled through the land as far as Shechem and there he set up camp beside the oak of Moreh. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abraham built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. So why did Abraham build the altar there? Because the Lord appeared to him. Because he, the Lord promised him something there. And there was something about that place where he had encountered God that Abraham just wanted to mark it. He wanted to build something in that place. He wanted to say, this place is important to me. God has met with me. My life has been changed in this moment and I will never be the same. This place has become highly significant for me and my life. And so I, wanted, I want to mark it and I want to make it clear that I accepted the promise that God gave to me this day. And I want to be able to find this place again, should I ever need to come back and remember what God has said and promised to do for me. So he needed something physical, something that he could find again, and he needed something that would express this agreement that was made with God in that place. So he built an altar to the Lord. Hold that thought and turn to Genesis in chapter 26 and verse 23. We're going to Chew on a load of scriptures today. So this is Isaac, Abraham's son. Genesis 26, 23. From there Isaac moved to Beersheba, where the Lord appeared to him on the night of his arrival. I am the God of your father, Abraham, he said. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants, and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of my promise to Abraham, my servant. Then, what did he do? Isaac built an altar there and worshipped the Lord. He set up his camp in that place, and his servants dug another well. Do you see the pattern? The servant of God puts their trust in God. They're obedient to go where God called them. And then when they get there, God speaks again, often with increasing blessing each time. And then the servant stops, drops, and builds another altar to worship. 
to give their all again and to celebrate God's faithfulness. So you, you see this so clearly with Abraham, you see it with Isaac. Let's look at Jacob. The first time we see Jacob building an altar is in Genesis chapter 35. And you can flick there if you like. <coughs> then God said to Jacob, Get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So what's happening here? God is asking Jacob to go back to a significant place to build an altar. And the backstory of this is fascinating. God is asking him to go back to Bethel. And if you remember, the story of Jacob is when he's just cheated his brother out of his inheritance. And his brother is now after his life because he's been cheated out of everything. Jacob has to run for his life because Esau is on the hunt, and he's a good hunter, the Bible says so. So he runs for his life, um, terrified. He's a young man who's full of manipulation. Uh, he's a grabber, that's what his name means. And he runs and runs and runs until he's far enough away from Esau, and then suddenly he meets God because he lies down in this place, with his head on a rock, and all of a sudden he has this incredible dream, and the heavens open up, and there's a ladder reaching up into heaven. Angels going up and down. And then he sees the Lord standing at the top of the ladder, and the Lord speaks to him. And the Lord basically gives him his destiny right there in that moment, while he's still the grabber running away from his brother, having stolen his inheritance. And at that moment, it changes his life, and he ends up going to live with his uncle Laban. And there God prospers him and begins to do what he said he would do when he met him in the dream. Jump forward two decades later... Jacob is now a man with wives and children and livestock. He's an incredibly wealthy man. He's somebody who has had that connection with God. God has protected him and prospered him throughout his life. And now God meets him and says, I want you to go back to Bethel. I want you to go back to that place that I met you when you were running from your brother. You with me? Go back. Let's read it together. So, Genesis 35 from verse 2. So Jacob told everyone in his household, get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves and put on clean clothing. We're now gonna, going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the Lord who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. Verse 6, eventually Jacob and his household arrived at Luz, also called Bethel, in Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and named that place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, because God appeared to him there when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Verse 9, now Jacob had returned from Padan Aram, and God appeared to him again at Bethel. That's significant. God blessed him, saying, your name is Jacob. But you will not be called Jacob any longer, for now your name will be Israel. <coughs> so God renamed him Israel. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Well, be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants, and I will give you the land I once gave to Abraham and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants after you. 
Then God went up from the place where he had spoken to Jacob, and Jacob set up a stone pillar to mark the place where God had spoken to him. Then he poured wine over it as an offering to God, and anointed the pillar with olive oil. And Jacob named that place Bethel, which means the house of God, because God had spoken to him there. So why did God take Jacob back to the place where he had changed his life? Because he wanted Jacob to reconnect with that promise, and he wanted to speak afresh into Jacob's life. Again, with increasing blessing and bigger promises to him personally. Here's what I want you to see. This is why we're doing our tour through Genesis. If we want to live our whole lives sanctified, set apart for God's blessing over us, we must not forget what God has already said and done. You with me? When God meets us in some way, or speaks in some way, or blesses us in some way, those are not just fleeting moments to be forgotten. They're moments to be treasured, and they're moments that we can return to. Whenever God inspires us to, we can return to the places that God has met with us and spoken with us, and we can worship him there once again. And it may be a place in your Bible where God has spoken to you profoundly one day, not just a word that seems to nourish your spirit for the day, although they're wonderful, not just the kind of daily bread stuff, but a moment where you've been reading your Bible and it's like the words jump off the page and hit you between the eyes and God speaks through the word and you understand something profound about who you are or who he is. Or God speaks a promise and it's not just a generic promise, it's a promise that speaks directly into your heart and you know God has said something over your life. There are, I hope you all have places in your Bible that speak like that. And I hope they're underlined or highlighted or have some kind of way of finding them again, like a monument that the Lord has spoken. It could be that. It could be a geographical place where you've met with the Lord. Where suddenly you realise that God was with you. Have you ever had a place like that, a time where, and a place where God has spoken to you powerfully? And immediately when I say that, your mind goes somewhere. Some of you have places like that. It may be a cassette tape with a recorded prophecy at a key time in your life when somebody spoke over you and it's, it's there in the drawer and every time you play it, it's like you're back there again that God spoke over your life. It could be a conference that impacted you deeply and changed the course and direction of your life. There are so many ways that God meets with us and changes everything. And we, like the patriarchs, can mark them and return to them and worship God as, as often as we want in those places. And I think this is an important part of living a sanctified life. Remembering the moments where God set us apart or called us forward and sanctified us in some way for his purposes. We can meet him there, wherever it is, and we can thank him for how much he's fulfilled his promises already. With Jacob in this story, he was going back to the place where God had originally spoken, full of testimony that God had already fulfilled that which he was going to do. 
Because in that first meeting with Jacob, and I see if, I've written it down, I'll see if I can find it for you. Look at what he says. He says, Jacob, I am the Lord of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your descendants. What's more, I'm with you. And I'll protect you wherever you go. And one day I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised to give you. When Jacob went back, he already had under his belt the testimony that God had been with him. That God was going to protect him wherever he was going to go. And that God was going to bring him back to that place. So when he sets foot back in that place in Bethel, so much of that word that God has spoken all those years ago is fulfilled just by him standing back in that spot. And he knows that God's been faithful. So what does that do to his heart with the whole of the rest of God's word where it says that God is going to fulfill uh, this incredible promise for him to be a blessing to the nations and his descendants are going to be numerous. Suddenly he has faith for everything God has said because so much of it has been fulfilled already. We can do the same. When we go back to the words that God has spoken to us and when we go back to the moments where God saved us or called us or set us apart or baptised us or whatever those momentous moments were in our lives, when you go back years later and you worship in that place, you can see what God has already done. And it builds your faith. It confirms to you that we've got a God that speaks and acts and makes us the people we were created to be. Because I'm looking around the room and I know that you are not the people you used to be. And God has done wonderful things in your lives. We're a room of testimonies. (coughs) Do we treasure them? Do we go back and worship where God has met us on the road? It's a tremendous gift to be able to do that. And just like with Jacob, when we go back, God can speak afresh. God can meet us in that place where we're celebrating everything he's done and everything he promised to do. And it's amazing how we're not looking at an old word sometimes when we do that. When we, when we turn it into worship and we thank God for what he's already done, it's amazing how God begins to speak. He honours the fact that we honour his word and he speaks again and he leads us forward just like he did with Jacob. It wasn't just about him having protection this time. That was the greatest need of his heart when he was running away from his brother. This time it was about changing his identity. He was going from Jacob to Israel. He needed to change at a phenomenal identity level and become a different man for the next chapter of his life. God meets us in that way as we go back and seek him and worship in those places. He will profoundly change us and lead us on. Good friend of this church, Ben Rex, who uh, they're here once a year at least, um, sharing about the work Ben and Heather are doing in the Himalayas. So Ben is director for YWAM, for the whole Himalayan region. Amazing family, if you don't know them, they're like mountain goats. They kind of trek up through impossible mountain passes to reach people groups that have never heard the gospel or anything about Jesus and just to bless them and to share their story. And uh, God does wonderful things with them. Wonderful people. But I remember Ben one day saying, 
they'd had a dream. And in his dream, he was in this dark room, so it was like pitch black and he couldn't feel his way anywhere. And then suddenly he was conscious there was an altar in the middle of, middle of the room. It kind of lit up. And there was an altar there. And he felt the presence of God. So it was just him standing before the altar. And as he stood before the altar, this was in his dream, he looked in his hands for something to offer the Lord. And he checked his pockets. He had no bag, he had nothing with him. He literally had just the cheap clothes he was standing up in and nothing else. And he suddenly felt ashamed that he didn't have anything to give. And he just was there before the Lord and he just said, God, I don't know what to do. I have nothing to give you. And it was just silence. And then he realized the only thing he had to give was himself. And so he climbed on the altar and he lay down on this altar and he said, God, I can just give you me. And he woke up. Um, and he said that was such a significant dream for him. There was something about the, how vivid that dream was when he woke up and the decision that he'd made in his subconscious that, that cemented something for him in his ministry and in his, his life. And he, he went about his ministry with a renewed sense of passion and vigor. He realized that he was no less passionate about the work he was doing now than when he first gave his life to do it all those years ago. And it was like a resending out into this work that God's called him to do, which cost that family a huge amount to do it. And I think that that's a picture of what I'm talking about. We are invited to do the same, to give ourselves on the altar of worship. So I want you to invite you all to spend this week identifying moments when God has most powerfully blessed you. Because I know he has. It's what he does. Moments where God encouraged you. Moments where he healed you, rescued you, called you, made himself known to you, revealed something of himself to you. Even moments before you believed. When you look back across the course of your life and even before you gave your heart to Jesus, you can sometimes see where God's hand has been on your life. And it's even possible to go back to those times and those places and say, God, thank you that you met me here, even though I didn't know it was you, even though I didn't know you were intervening in my life. I see your intervention now, and I want to go back there and worship. I realized at that point that I needed to change, or I, I appreciate something new about myself that you put into me. I want to say thank you. Write it down, if you can. <coughs> Those events which change the course of your life. And I want to encourage you to worship over the list and then ask him if there is one place that you need to come back to or a promise you need to return to or an event you need to remember. And if God highlights something, I want to urge you to go to the place as soon as you're able to and worship there once again. <coughs> because I believe he may well speak afresh and bless you even more. I don't know. But I do know that when we do these things, it delights his heart and it stirs up God's blessing in us and it sets us apart for what God wants to do next in our lives.